Welcome to Not True But Useful, a podcast from Cheek by Jow. My name is Lucy Dawkins, and in these episodes I've been chatting to the company's artistic directors, Declan Donnellan and Nicole Maraud, about their work in the theatre. Hello Declan, how are you doing today? Hello Lucy, I'm fine. Thank you so much for meeting again this week to talk through questions from listeners yeah uh, and we have a really great question from a listener this week about dread now dread is a word that listeners to this podcast will hear a lot and this particular actor is talking about it in reference to an episode that we did about Chekhov's play three sisters and basically dread is something that you think motivates characters far more often than things that they want or what they desire that dread is just a really useful ingredient in a play. And before we get on to exactly what this actor's question is about dread, it might be useful to have just a quick recap of why it is that you think dread is so useful, just to catch any up any listeners who might not have heard that episode. Well, good. Well, ultimately, I can't really explain that, of course. It's just something that seems to work. And it's a very useful question to ask and for the actors to ask themselves about the character. Is there, is there something that this character dreads? And that just seems to make the rehearsal go faster and deeper. Dread is slightly different from just what you don't want. What you don't want is something that's in your power. You know, I I don't want ice cream. I I do want fish and chips. There are things that you can control. Dread is different. Dread is something that's bigger than you. That's why it's so frightening. And I talked earlier about the Macbeths, that they become full of dread. They can't control what's happening. It just becomes bigger than them. The dread is something that kind of looms bigger than you, and you can't always say what it is. Um, a way I have of looking at it, um, which is not true but useful, is that we kind of are born with a capacity for dread. The dread of something is something that invades your dreams, it invades all of you, it's, it surfaces in different places. Yes, we can say dread is irrational, but I don't know, sometimes I'm, I'm not quite sure what irrational means, actually. It's real. Um, it's part of us. I suspect it's part of our survival mechanism. Certain times in our lives, we can really spike. And it seems to me to be a, an enormous feature, an overwhelming feature of um, many of the great plays. That's, that's all I can say. And, and, me, and many of the great stories, many of the great novels, that, that there's a sense of dread in them and people um, avoiding it. So dread is really useful because it's there all the time. We've always got this uncomfortable thing that's happening yes. that's keeping us alive, right? This discomfort is about keeping us attuned to danger. Yes. But dread is also a bit complicated because we don't like to admit that we're scared all the time. No. We like to think that we're okay. We like to try and convince ourselves that we're okay. And so most of the time we're both fueled by dread and convincing ourselves that we're not afraid at all. And so dread is often sitting kind of in the groundwater, unacknowledged, a kind of ghost that's that's haunting the space, but that we don't necessarily want to consciously admit is there. And that makes dread a bit tricky because a character might not even be aware of their own dread or willing to admit it even to themselves. Well, Lucy, as you know, I'm speaking to you from Madrid, where I'm rehearsing Life is a Dream by Calderon, La Vie des Sueños. 
And there's a lot of dread that's absolutely clear on the surface. It's about Basilio, the king of Poland, who receives a prophecy that his son's growing to grow up to be a complete monster and destroy not only the country, but also destroy him. So instead of having the child murdered, as happens in Oedipus, Basilio orders his son Sigismondo to be put in a prison. He's jailed by somebody called Clotaldo, and he's kept there all his life until he's let out. And that's the sort of big crisis moment of the play. But clearly, this, he has a, he suffers from a, a dread of his son, part of which is rational because it's to do with the prophecy. But the way he talks about it, realizes it's been built up into something much, much bigger in his mind. There's also another character, and I was rehearsing with um, uh, Rebecca this morning, who plays Rosara. And Rosara has come to Poland because she's been dishonored. Her honor's been taken away from her by a Russian nobleman called Astolfo. It appears to be at least he um, had sex with her, saying he was going to marry her. And she comes back to have her honor restored, I suppose, by revenge or possibly by marrying him, which is, in fact, what happens at the end of the play. But there's a drivenness to her action that's interesting, because although something terrible has been done to Rosara in, in, a, in a completely factual, um, if you like, um, rational way, there are also other things about her, like she was abandoned by her father and her mother when she was very, very young. And there will be huge traces of this in people. There must be some enormous dread in her of being abandoned by people, of being let down by the person that most loves her. And it gives a sort of edge to the whole plot of Rosara. And I, we were working on that this morning, and I was thinking that, you know, that the obvious thing, that the, the stated, you know, if you like, her objective is to get revenge on, on the guy who's so betrayed her. But you also feel something else going on underneath the surface, that there's um, a, a, an incredible sense of hurt and rage um, that's also part of what's coming out. I mean, I think she's not alone. I think many of us are dread being abandoned uh, by the people we love. Um, and, it's, and it's kind of there, and I think it affects a, a lot of our actions, the dreads that we have. So this all leads on to the question that this actor has put to you, which is the problem of how do you let dread stimulate your character's system? If the character is motivated by dread, but this dread might be something that they're denying or something that they don't hold in the front of their minds, something that haunts them rather than something they're conscious of, how can an actor go about getting this dread into their bones and into their body when they're going about the process of rehearsing a play. As they're stepping into the character's world, how can they step into this sometimes slightly formless, sometimes inexplicable, sometimes hidden dread? It's quite a challenge. Basically, how do you cook with dread in rehearsal, I suppose, is the question. I'm afraid part of my answer is going to be I wouldn't talk about it too much or rationalise it too much because otherwise you'll kind of commoditize it into jargon or, or technique. Um, it's something to be aware of. I mean, you'll get it from reading the play and let these things occur to you elusively. So, for example, Rosara's um, very determined to get her honour restored to her. But that must also mean that she suffers hugely from the sense of being shamed. And so does Segismundo, whom she meets. And these are two people who've been shamed. And we've just been doing some work on, on that and how very, very difficult it is to do. 
which is ironic because I think shame is something that most people um, unfortunately understand all, all too well. And our dread of being humiliated and our dread of shame goes very, very deep in us. But very often that's a very good way into a character. We say one size doesn't fit all. No, that's true. But by and large, there are certain things that do unite us in, in our species. We don't like being abandoned. We don't like being humiliated, which is a very interesting one to look at. We don't like being shamed. You see, I don't really think an animal can be shamed. Only humans can be shamed, you know. Somebody once said, you know, if you put a top hat on a pig, you don't humiliate the pig. You humiliate the guy who normally wears the top hat. But the, it's only the human that can be shamed. I think it's also an interesting challenge about how you get to grips with the particular dread of your particular character with a particular bit of script that you have. And one thing that I notice you talking about a lot is framing things always in pairs of binaries. You know, if someone spends an awful lot of time telling you they want something, it must be because they're afraid of something else. Or if somebody is pointedly not mentioning something, it's because that thing that isn't being mentioned is really important and is hanging over them. And so your approach to finding the dread often involves thinking and imagining quite expansively around a play. Yes. Thinking in opposites, thinking about what isn't there, thinking about nothing being one fixed thing, but always just one end of a binary of two things. Yes. I mean, I talked about it extensively before in a podcast about Macbeth, but they studiously don't say kill the king in the scene in which they get together to pan killing the king. <laughs> it's quite a tour de force to get through the scene about that. But you get something interesting in that because there's a dread about what they are going to do. I mean, I think what's moving about that is you understand that their incredible sense of shame about what it is they're going to do. Um, and, and that's something that you read in by its absence because they never actually can say the words. There are many times when you can we can sort out things like that, but things that are howling um, by their absence. Um, I, I just think that it's quite good, though, not to legalise dread too much and say this character dreads this and this character dreads that because what we do dread changes, you know, and dread is very much like an onion. They appear against onion rings. You know, you take off one layer and underneath it's another layer and underneath it's another layer. And we never quite know what the centre is going to be. And this act also has, I think, a great addendum to this question, which is what is a process by which an actor can get this dread into their bones and into their body without feeling like they have to understand it? Like, How do you actually go about letting that dread feed you in a muscular way when you're rehearsing a part. I mean, you just told us that you're working with two actors in rehearsal on this. How do you help them get this into their bodies? I think the actor has to prepare the groundwork so they're ready to be inspired. Like today, I was talking to them about something like this, about what it's like to have this rather strange dark energy in you that's, that's pushing you forward. But at the end of the day, it's something that their imaginations have to possess and ignite. I'm not sure there's anything that the actor can actually do apart from think about it, really. Maybe invent some small exercises from themselves, but really just try to let themselves see through that my mysterious journey of empathy to see that somebody's not like you, but that this person is actually really frightened by something, really haunted by something. And to imagine what that might be like, to imagine what that might be like to be in those shoes, so this morning I was talking to that actor playing Segismundo today that he's been um, brought up by this jailer in this dirty little tower 
um, and he hasn't been allowed to see anyone. He's not, I've never met his father. He's just met his jailer and a couple of guards. Um, and he's discovered by Rosara. And he must feel many, many, many different things. But one of the things he would feel is he would feel shame of his condition. He'd probably feel guilty that he was part of this, that this terrible thing had happened to him, but somehow partially it must have been his fault. Indeed, that's what he's been told for his whole life. Sigismundo comes out and he realizes that Rosara and Clarine are there looking at him and he's never seen people before. And um, these are the, the first strangers he's ever seen. And I was trying to think of the different things that he would feel, and it's written quite cleverly by Calderon, that he, he says, you know, I have, I have an impulse to go towards you, and I've also got an impulse to hide from you. That it's very difficult to imagine, first, what would it would be like just not to have seen anybody, not to have any much idea of himself, apart from the fact that he'd done some terrible thing that he doesn't know what it is. And no one seems to know what it is. It seems to be shrouded in mystery. But it's a reason why he has to be kept from everybody and he has to be kept in chains because there's something terribly evil at the heart of his being. And it's um, difficult to imagine. On the other hand, <laughs> sometimes I think the problem is it's not so difficult to imagine that you know, he, he believes himself to be marked and what that would be like um, through his first conversation with another human being. We've done a lot of work on that day, and I'm sure we'll do a lot more work on it in the time to come. But we need to put ourselves in positions where we unknow things, where we subtract things. His relationship towards language can't be that settled. But also, he sees her, and he sees her seeing him. And what does she see when she sees him? One of the many things he must feel is very ashamed at how terrible he looks. And we've been, work we've been working on that this morning. And all I can say is it's very difficult to do. But, you know, I, I don't know that there's a process. The answer to that question is what we were doing this morning. And I'm afraid it does equip me to say that there is no answer to the question, that you just try your best and see when something ignites. The problem, let's face it, in any play is that, you know, the play tells a story, but the story isn't enough. The story is there uh, merely as a delivery system to share experiences. And that's the thing that we have to supply. And that's not just there in the words on the page. So this morning, we've been trying to work out how to do this extraordinary meeting between this woman with an enormous agenda and Zygismundo with this bizarre history. And it'll take us a long time to do it. And I, the, Rebecca and Alfredo, who are doing it, are absolutely wonderful and indeed patient. And we try it one way, another way. But I think that's the only way to do it. I, there isn't a, a simple technique in it, I have to say. If there is, please tell me. And I'll go back and I'll use it tomorrow. And in this way, I often feel like the things that you have to share for actors and directors, anybody making theatre, are less about a series of techniques and more about a philosophy, essentially, that you're asking people to pay attention to a particular way of thinking about the world that might be useful for bringing things to life. So you're right, there isn't a process by which you can cook dread up in a scene. But assuming that the dread is there looking for what shadows are being cast over the scene means that it's going to ignite your imagination. Basically, it's just opening yourself up to seeing if it's going to work for you, I guess. I think that's right. And when it comes, when we get that inspiration, we have to be grateful and pray it comes again tomorrow, that's all. But it is hard work, and I don't think there's an easy solution. And the words I've invented, like dread and so on, are, but they're not perfect words. I think we know dread 
in ourselves when we suddenly start to dread something and it gets a kind of magical possession over us. We may not be able to explain it, but by God we know if it's there. I think the really hard work in what you're asking actors to do is that actually to think about the world like this involves taking a look at yourself quite hard. It involves acknowledging that we're often deceiving ourselves about how okay we really are. Uh, it often involves acknowledging that as a human being, what we often do is sweep things under the rug and let them fester. And that if we're going to be able to see that in a character, we kind of have to admit it about ourselves. And that's the really hard work in approaching this this kind of thing. It's about actually getting rid of some of our own assumptions and self-deceptions and self-deceits in order to really get into the guts of a character. Yes, someone's doing a play, I realise how much has been cleaned away in life. Um, rather disastrously that we've tidied away so much mess we've swept so much into the corner and to actually have this encounter between this extraordinary encounter between rosario and sigismund at the hands at the beginning of the play that it, it's actually difficult for us all to think my god what would that be like and that sort of massive act of, of empathy really for people who are fictitious that it's an exercise to do that Again, when we go back to saying, like, what's the process of doing this? There isn't really a process. There isn't a, a series of boxes you can tick and go through to help get dread into your body as you prepare a character. But you can assume a bunch of things that will be really useful. And I think one of the things that we keep coming back to that's really useful to assume is that the character is actually very close to the fine line of not being okay all the time. Yes, that's Your true. character's never, never all right and really sees the looming of being not okay right next to them all the time. As even And sometimes especially the characters who seem the most secure and the most all right and the most in control. Yes. They're, they're feeling like they're holding on by, by a threat. Yes, that's very good. Can I just make a point there about assumptions? You mentioned assumptions. Um, and there's a, an, an old saying, you, know, you must never make assumptions. Um, but this is nonsense, because if we didn't make assumptions, we wouldn't know to put our feet on the floor in the morning in case the floor wasn't there. Then you have to assume that there'll be a world outside the front door when you walk out. We proceed all the time on assumptions. We have to make good assumptions. So you can't direct a play or you can't make a piece of art without making certain assumptions of things that we may or may not feel together. They may be very faulty assumptions, but... You know, I think by and large, the majority of people don't like to be humiliated. I think by and large, most people will do a lot to avoid shame. I think by and large, nobody likes to be abandoned. I think by and large, nobody likes to be picked up and dropped. And you can legalistically say, oh, but that's not true for everybody. Say, no, but you know, it doesn't have to be true for everybody. The universe is probabilistic. Apparently, we only recognize other people on the basis of probability, that they look like the person I saw yesterday, so it's probably them. I think the most important thing is to know that dread is important. Dread is a fast way to get there, but it's like the witches in Macbeth, it will not be commanded. Dread's going to take hold of the character. The dread should not take hold of the actor. That when you're acting the character, you don't want to be invaded by the same dread as the character, otherwise you won't be able to act them. Um, but you need to observe that this person is pursued by these demons. You're not pursued by the demons. You watch them being pursued by the demons. And then you act as if you're pursued by those demons. That's what you do. And I think this is also a wonderful piece of advice to help actors preserve their own health within a rehearsal room. You know, like, you don't have to become your character. You don't have to be traumatised by the same things that they're traumatised from. They are different from you. And uh, you can have a distance there. 
and still act them really well. Yes, I'd like to say something more severe than that, if I may, which is that if you are having the same feelings as your character, your performance will not be any good, that there must be a distance between you, otherwise you're not going to be able to play it. I think you need to be curious, investigate, explore, make the empathic leap and realize what demons are pursuing this character and not confuse them with your own demons. Keep them very, very separate. Fantastic. Well, that's where we're going to end for today. Thank you very much, Declan. And best of luck with the rest of your rehearsals for Life is a Dream. Thank you so much, Lucy. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to hear more gems about theatre from Declan and Nick, you'll find many more seasons of the podcast on the Cheek by Jowl website or wherever you get your podcasts. And thank you to Sergei Chekrashov, who composed this music for Cheek by Jowl's production of Three Sisters.